0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News, I'm Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. Thousands are without power and millions are under winter weather warnings as a powerful nor'easter hits the east coast and California sees another round of floods. President Biden rolling out expansive gun control measures while visiting California. What's in his latest executive order and how Republicans are reacting. More transparency could soon be coming on the Biden family's dealings with a Chinese energy company. The Treasury is allowing a House committee to review suspicious activity reports. Should the U.S. continue supporting Ukraine for however long the war takes? Potential contenders for the 2024 Republican presidential field give their take on it. And the death toll from Cyclone Freddy continues to rise in Southern Africa. It's one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. (music) School closings, canceled flights, and power outages. The start of a major winter storm is disrupting people's lives across the Northeast United States.
1: The first nor'easter of the season started hitting northeast states Monday night, bringing heavy snow, strong winds, and coastal flooding. More than 20 million people were under winter weather alerts Tuesday. The Weather Prediction Center says New England and the northern parts of the Mid-Atlantic region could see 6 to 18 inches of snow. Wind speeds could reach 45 to 65 miles per hour. More than 25 million people were under high wind alerts Tuesday, including those in Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. According to the Weather Service, more than 260,000 customers were without power in the northeast. Hundreds of flights were also delayed or canceled on Tuesday across the country, with ground stop in effect at LaGuardia Airport in New York. Over on the West Coast, California is also bracing for severe weather conditions. An atmospheric river slammed Northern California on Monday and took aim at Central and Southern California on Tuesday. About 30 million people across the state were under flood alerts. It's the 11th atmospheric river to hit the West this season. The two areas of most concern are along the Central California coast between Monterey and Santa Barbara counties. Officials have issued an evacuation alert in parts of these counties. 40 of the state's 58 counties were under a state of emergency. Around 600 Californians are taking refuge in shelters. Forecasters say the atmospheric river should begin to taper off by Wednesday. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News.
0: And Ohio is suing Norfolk Southern over the train derailment that released toxic chemicals in East Palestine last month. State Attorney General Dave Yost accuses the company of negligence in a 58-count suit filed in federal court today. The lawsuit cites the railroad's 80% increase in accidents over the past decade and says the derailment could have been prevented. Norfolk Southern has yet to respond to the lawsuit, but its CEO has pledged to make things right. He says the company will clean the site thoroughly and quickly and is considering whether to cover health care costs. It's also reportedly implementing new safety measures. And President Biden announces new gun control measures today while visiting California. The White House calls the executive order the most comprehensive policy Biden can enact without Congress. NTD's Iris Tau has more from the White House.
2: President Biden on Tuesday traveled to Monterey Park, California, where 11 people died during a shooting in January. And Biden signed an executive order aimed at expanding gun control.
3: This executive order helps keep firearms out of dangerous hands. As I continue to call on Congress to require background checks for all firearm sales.
2: Biden's latest order seeks to reinforce background checks for gun purchases by ensuring dealers follow existing laws. And the White House says the order's goal is to implement almost universal background checks without additional legislation by Congress. But the order is sparking some opposition. A spokesman for the nonprofit Gun Owners of America tells me that he believes the order will impact law-abiding citizens. Uh,
4: executive order literally wants to redefine what constitutes as engaging in business, basically meaning that anyone, even myself, if I was to personally sell a firearm from my collection, I would now be engaging in business and would have to get a federal firearms license.
2: And Biden again calls for banning what he calls assault weapons.
5: Ban assault weapons, ban them again, do it now, enough, do something, do something big. But such measures are
2: unlikely to pass in Congress, especially with Republicans controlling the House and Democrats holding a narrow majority in the Senate. Republican Congresswoman Mary Miller on Tuesday called Biden's latest executive order an attack on Second Amendment rights, adding that it's the catch-and-release program that's contributing to what she calls a crime crisis. And Gun Owners of America echoes that point.
4: The Biden administration is claiming that it's firearms that are committing crimes. It's not. It's criminals that are committing crimes. Meanwhile, President Biden
2: continues to call on Congress to act. Reporting from the White House at How at TD
0: News. The latest on the GOP's investigation into the Biden family's money trail. The Treasury Department is now allowing the Republican-led Oversight Committee to review suspicious activity reports. NTD's Melina Weiskop has the details on the years-long probe.
4: More transparency could soon be coming regarding the Biden family's business transactions, specifically with regards to the president's son, Hunter Biden, and his brother, James Biden. Now, this is after Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer subpoenaed Bank of America and Two months after Comer requested more information from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen regarding the Biden family's suspicious business transactions that have been flagged by U.S. banks. The Treasury Department is now complying and will provide the committee with an in-camera review of suspicious activity reports related to what the GOP described as unusual foreign or high-dollar transactions. Now, this specifically is related to the Biden family's dealings with a now bankrupt Chinese energy company. This investigation has been a top priority for House Republicans since they took the majority. Chairman Comer wrote in a statement that bank documents that the committee already has reveals a $3 million wire from a Chinese energy company two months after Joe Biden left vice presidency. And that soon after hundreds of thousands of dollars in payouts went to members of the Biden family. Chairman Comer revealing that there's another Biden family member in the mix, but wouldn't specify exactly who. Here's a look.
5: What we assumed was this was just about the president's son and two brothers, but now there's a new name that's emerged. So, and and they are a Biden.
4: The president has denied any involvement in his son's overseas business dealings. And Democrat ranking member on the Oversight Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin, accused Chairman Comer of using his authority in hopes of attacking the president and boosting former President Trump's re election efforts. And Chairman Comer pushes back, saying that he has not spoken with Trump about this investigation, arguing that it's purely about protecting national security. Now, Comer also recently. Uh, recently subpoenaed a Treasury Secretary official requiring him to testify for an interview, although since the Treasury has now agreed to comply with the committee uh, by providing them with these suspicious activity reports, that interview is now postponed. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News.
0: The Federal Reserve is reviewing Silicon Valley Bank after its crash. Now, reports indicate that numerous federal agencies are investigating America's second-largest bank failure.
6: The Federal Reserve announced on Monday that it's launching a review into the supervision and regulation of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB. The statement reads, We need to have humility and conduct a careful and thorough review of how we supervised and regulated this firm and what we should learn from this experience. A person familiar with the matter reportedly told the Washington Post that the Justice Department is investigating the issue as well. SVB in 2018 lobbied to change the rules for banks handling less than $250 billion. It argued that they shouldn't be considered systematically important. This freed them from capital requirements and other obligations. Former President Trump signed off on that bill.
3: Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again.
6: Biden added that he'll try to strengthen the rules for small banks. Senator Manchin on Tuesday said that he's partly open to that idea.
0: I'm open to making adjustments that will still allow the small community and rural areas to still function without overregulating to the standpoint where they can't participate, they go out of business. You can, you know, you can make and overregulation to the point where they just can't function. And you've got to be careful of that.
6: Meanwhile, shareholders are bringing a class-action lawsuit against SVB's parent company, its CEO, and its chief financial officer. It alleges that some of SVB's financial reports didn't fully account for warnings from the Federal Reserve about interest rate hikes. The suit also claims that SVB failed to disclose that, if its investments were negatively affected by rising interest rates, it was particularly susceptible to a bank run. The government review of the crash is scheduled to be released on May 1st. Reporting by Aryan Pastar, NTD News.
0: Turning now to international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin says Russia is now fighting for its very own existence. So should the U.S. continue supporting Ukraine for however long the war takes? Trump and DeSantis give their take on it. NTD's Jason Perry has that story.
3: On Tuesday, a Russian airstrike hit an apartment building in the Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. Ukrainian officials said at least one person was killed and seven were injured. Kramatorsk is located about 30 miles northwest of Bakhmut, which is now home to the deadliest infantry battle in Europe since World War II. Also on Tuesday, Russian President Putin said what was at stake in Ukraine was Russia's very existence as a state. Ukrainian soldiers say that Russian troops continue to keep coming in waves. And Russia appears to be in it for the long run. Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, visited one of the top missile factories, and he ordered them to double the production of high-precision rockets, according to Russia's state-run media.
6: And precisely, therefore, we hope that the obligations that you assumed in 2023 will be fulfilled under the program in 2024.
3: And looking on to 2024, Fox News asked a potential 2024 Republican presidential field if helping Ukraine fight Russia is a vital U.S. interest. Former President Trump answered, no, but it is for Europe, but not for the United States. That is why Europe should be paying far more than we are or equal. And he said if he were president, he'd end the war in 24 hours or less. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also said that the war isn't a vital U.S. interest. He also added this. The U.S. should not provide assistance that could enable Ukraine to engage in offensive operations beyond its borders. F-16s and long-range missiles should therefore be off the table. But Poland appears to trust Ukraine wouldn't fly fighter jets into Russian territory. The Polish prime minister said they may send MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine in four to six weeks. And later on Tuesday, a Russian fighter jet made physical contact with the U.S. military drone over international waters over the Black Sea. The Pentagon explains.
5: Uh, what we what we saw, again, were, were fighter aircraft dumping fuel in front of this Uh, UAV, uh, and then getting so close to the aircraft that it actually damaged the propeller on the Uh, MQ-9. We assess that it likely caused some damage to the Russian aircraft as
3: well. And he said the State Department is raising concerns over the incident directly with the Russian government. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: Now turning our attention to Africa. The death toll from Cyclone Freddy is climbing into the hundreds. It ripped through Southern Africa this past weekend for the second time in a month.
1: As of Tuesday, the total death toll from Cyclone Freddy has reached over 220 in Malawi, Mozambique and Madagascar. Malawi reported the most deaths, 190. Cyclone Freddy is one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. It first made landfall in Mozambique late last month and hit the region again last Saturday.
6: It was too bad in the night, but now that it is daytime, I can feel the loss. I have never seen something terrible like this. My neighbors' houses are all gone. The family members are gone. They are missing. In some instances, the father is alive, but the wife and the children are gone.
1: Malawi's second largest city and commercial hub is among the most hard hit areas. Communication networks and electricity supplies in the storm area have been cut. Severe flooding and rain damaged roads and bridges, hampering rescue efforts.
6: The child was stuck up to her head in the mud. She was crying for help. Even though the water was very strong, we managed to cross and rescue her. It was very difficult, but we managed to pull her out.
1: Authorities in Malawi say over 500 people have been injured and dozens are missing. More than 22,000 people there were seeking shelter. Forecasters say Cyclone Freddy could sweep through Mozambique again, bringing more wind and rain. According to the World Meteorological Organization, it could be the longest-lasting tropical cyclone ever.
0: Coming up, a New York regulation struck down as unconstitutional. But now that ruling is being appealed. Dubbed the Quarantine Camp Regulation, how could it affect you? And we examine some of the legal arguments in the case. And in soccer, the World Cup in Qatar had a thrilling ending. Yet the overall games were scarred by reports of hundreds of human rights abuses that have left some asking, will anyone pay? We'll have that and more coming up. Next, we take a deep dive into a little-known lawsuit surrounding a regulation that would have given New York's Governor Kathy Hochul the authority to issue orders mandating quarantines in relation to highly contagious diseases. The state Supreme Court struck that power down six months ago, but the Governor and her Department of Health are now appealing. Earlier today, I spoke with the attorney who spearheaded this suit, Bobby Ann Cox, to learn more about the significance of the case and the appeal for New Yorkers and for the nation. Bobby Ann Cox, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us.
7: Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Now, last year, you secured a landmark victory in a case against New York Governor Kathy Hochul's controversial Quarantine Camps Regulation. But she's just filed an appeal.
7: What's your initial response here? So my initial response is um, But a surprise. Uh, They did have six months from the time that they filed their notice of appeal. So um, I'm surprised. I'm also a little bit shocked because, um, you know, it is quite a strong decision that the judge had issued last year. So um, it's a little surprising that they're challenging this. And on what grounds is Hochul appealing? Um, so, they are making a few different arguments in their appeal. Um, of course, they're challenging the standing of my plaintiffs. And um, I am representing a group of New York state legislators in this case, Senator George Borrello, Assemblyman Chris Tague, Assemblyman Mike Lawler, who's now Congressman Mike Lawler, and um, also a citizens group called Uniting New York State. So. Yeah, one of the arguments uh, is that none of my plaintiffs have standings. I don't think that is a valid argument. Um, And then they have some other arguments they've put in there about, uh, you know, claiming that their regulation is constitutional and such. So it'll be very interesting. A lot lot of different arguments going on.
3: Mm.
7: And on what grounds do the legislators have standing in this case? In essence, what we're saying here is the wrong branch of government has issued um, a law right? We're calling it a law. They're calling it a regulation. The Department of Health issued this regulation, and the Department of Health sits under Governor Kathy Hochul. That's the wrong branch of government. Um, They are not supposed to be issuing regulations that conflict with existing New York state law, which this regulation does. It conflicts with existing law, which we've had on the books for 70 years, which tells you how you need to isolate or quarantine somebody if they are conducting themselves in an improper manner, and um, they have a communicable disease that is dangerous to other people around them. So it it absolutely conflicts with existing law. And so, basically, by doing this, the governor has taken power from the New York state legislature, whereby harming the members of the legislature. So um, that is the basis upon which we have standing in this case. And what would it mean if the ruling is overturned? So if this ruling is overturned, I really think we're going to see the floodgates open. I think we're going to see agencies, not just the Department of Health, but other agencies as well, that will say, "Okay, well, if that ruling was overturned, that means we can make any kind of regulation we want, even if it conflicts with existing New York state law And even if it conflicts with our Constitution, you know, hey, it doesn't matter. So we can just make any kind of regulation we want. Um, And that's very dangerous because departments like the Department of Health, for example, are made up of unelected bureaucrats. So the voters don't have an opportunity to vote those people out, right? You can only vote in and out the members of the New York State Legislature, right? The senators and the assembly members or the governor. But in those agencies, no matter what agency it is, you don't get to elect those people. So it would be very dangerous to give power to agencies to make regulations that conflict with our Constitution or conflict with existing law.
0: And in a snapshot, what was so concerning about this regulation or is
7: so concerning? So this regulation was a complete breach of separation of powers. And we saw here the Department of Health giving themselves a power that they were not entitled to. The regulation said that they could pick and choose which New Yorkers to lock up or lock down. It didn't matter, they could lock you up in your home or they could lock you up in a facility of their choosing. They didn't have to prove you were sick. They didn't have to prove you were even exposed to a communicable disease. They could keep you there for however long they wanted. There was no restriction on time, so it could have been days or weeks or months. There was no restriction on age, so they could have done this to you, but they also could have done this to your child or your grandchild or your elderly parent. And because they didn't have to prove that you were sick, um, you know, they also, there was no mechanism by which you could negotiate your way out, right? And what I mean by that is um, when we were having oral arguments in front of the judge last year, the judge asked the attorney general's office and said, let's say you take a family, let's say you put them into isolation or you put them into quarantine and in a hospital, for example, how do they get out once they're in there? And um, there was a pretty heavy pause by the attorney general's office. And then finally they said, well, you know, I guess they could hire a lawyer and then they could just sue. Right. So It was very clear that this regulation didn't have any sort of due process protections built into it. And there was this unbridled power that would allow the government, the Department of Health, to just pick and choose which New Yorkers to lock up or lock down with no proof you're sick. You know, there were many other provisions in there that were pretty scary, actually. I mean, they could have used the police to enforce their orders, which means you could have gotten a knock on your door. Uh, from the police or the sheriff, you know, saying I'm sorry, you need to come with me. I have an order from the health department. Um, you know, they they had doctors. They had a provision that doctors were supposed to report their patients to the health department if if they believed they possibly had a communicable disease. You know, there were a lot of pro- parts in this reg which were not just shocking, but highly unconstitutional. so um, we knew we had to bring a lawsuit and and get it struck down and, and and we did and now the governor and the Attorney general want to try and overturn that.
0: Finally, what can concerned Americans do to help protect their constitutional rights in this case?
7: Yeah, So, it is really important that people know what's going on. Um, You know, this case last year got very little public media attention. Um, A lot of New Yorkers didn't know this case was going on. They didn't know, even once we won the case. So, I think, if people can, uh, you know, try and spread the word about this, and um, help generate some sort of a buzz amongst their communities about this, um, it, it really is important. Um, we do have a web page that's set up specifically about this lawsuit. If people want to get more information, if they want to read the judge's decision from last year, um, and the website is www.unitingnys.com lawsuit. Um, There's a lot of information there, um, even flyers that you can download and post on your social media to help raise awareness about the case. Um, there's a donate button. I am handling the case pro bono, so um, we do, you know, if people can donate, we do appreciate that. Um, but really, to get involved, I think people need to spread the word, because this is not something that should be secret. Everybody should know um, that Governor Hogel wants this power back and, uh, and her Department of Health. And, and they're not entitled to it. That's the wrong branch of government.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Bobby Ann Cox, New York attorney. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories.
5: Thank you Steph. Purdue center Zach Eady was named a first team All-American today the lone unanimous pick on the five person team. The seven foot four Eady ranked sixth nationally in scoring and second in rebounding while leading the Boilermakers to a conference title. Edie, who was also named the Big Ten's Player of the Year, was joined on the first team by Trace Jackson Davis of Indiana, Kansas forward Jalen Wilson, Houston guard Marcus Sasser, and freshman Brandon Miller of Alabama. Meanwhile, Detroit Mercy guard Antoine Davis, who led the NCAA in scoring this season while finishing his career just three points shy of Pete Maravich's all-time scoring record, was named honorable mention. And in soccer news, a petition with more than a million signatures is calling for FIFA to compensate migrants who suffered human rights abuses while working on the World Cup in Qatar. Human rights groups Amnesty International and Avaz delivered it as FIFA meets in Rwanda this week. FIFA reportedly made more than $7 billion from the 2022 World Cup cycle. Meanwhile, a Qatari official previously reported that there were between 400 and 500 deaths during the construction of the buildings, though the true number remains unknown due to a lack of an investigation. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has eight games on, featuring reigning MVP Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets, who've actually lost three games in a row, but still lead the Western Conference. They play at Toronto. And the college game, the first four games of the NCAA tournament start tonight as Southeast Missouri State faces Texas A&M Corpus Christi, followed by Pittsburgh versus Mississippi State. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has a dozen games, including the Edmonton Oilers and leading scorer Connor McDavid, whose 127 points are nearly 30 more than second place. They play at Ottawa. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you.
0: Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie. Cox. Good night.